God and it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God, the believer, as Lori, as much as it is Steve, might be mature, thoroughly furnished in all kinds of good works. And so that's just kind of a premise we have around here and you know, no brag, just fact. I mean, that's just kind of, uh, we don't debate that. Uh, we try to teach the word and try to live it out. But while all scripture is inspired and all scripture is therefore profitable, it's not true, Clay or Henry, that all scripture is equally as strategic. And let me try to illustrate that. Um, let's see, John, uh, look up Nahum 3.16. Steve Skinner, look up uh, John 3.16. Uh, I would say that uh, Nahum, the Old Testament prophet, is just as inspired as the Gospel of John. I'd also, I, I'd also say they're both profitable, but i got to believe John 3.16, David, is more strategic most of the time for most people than Nahum 3.16. So... Um, John, go ahead and read Nahum 3.16 pretty loud for us. <clears throat> now, in the context of that Old Testament prophecy about the sovereignty and the omnipotence and the faithfulness of God, that statement affirms that overall theme, and that's a very important message for us to know and understand. Uh, it's inspired. It's uh, there in John's English translation, it's preserved, and it's profitable Profitable, but I got to believe John three sixteen is even more strategic. Uh, Steve, read that one. Yeah, Martin Luther, no less, called that the gospel. Chatney, Martin Luther, the reformer, said John three sixteen is the gospel in one verse. God the Father, as the author of the plan of salvation, loved the sinful world full of spiritually dead people like you and me, unable to save ourselves that he sent his son, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, took on humanity without ceasing to be deity. One person, two natures, fully God, fully human. As Moses lifted up the serpent on the pole, verse 14 says, the son of man, Jesus says, will be lifted up, that whoever believes in him will not perish. Future tense, you won't go to the lake of fire, David, as a believer, but present tense, you have right now as an abiding possession everlasting life. So when I think about Scripture, it's all inspired. It's all profitable. It's all worthwhile. But some's more strategic than others. And when you think about... Let's, let's go back to my uh, PowerPoint there, David, if we can. Um, when you think about especially strategic Scripture when it comes to the whole issue of spirituality, a fruitful... Hey, I, I could try to be cute and say... Uh, hey, Brant, do you want to have a joyous, fruitful, stable Christian life? And, of course, you're going to say, yeah. And I'm going to tell you, in my opinion, the most strategic place in the entire Word of God for uh, harmony to find out and review and emphasize how to have a stable, you want a stable, fruitful, joyous Christian life, right, Sheree? Wouldn't it be great if we had five chapters somewhere in the Bible where Jesus tells us exactly how that works and how you can have that, Nancy? That's what the upper room discourse is in uh, John, Gospel of John, chapter 13 through 17. So our joy this morning to start a study of this critically strategic portion of Scripture 
We're like flies on the wall, and Jesus will teach principles that Kay can immediately apply to her Christian life. And uh, it's all great, but this is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. I love it. Uh, let's pray that we'll be especially teachable to God's Word this morning, as we always want to be. And let's pray for our troops, our peace officers, and our firefighters. We're honored to have a lot of veterans here. We've got some active military uh, with us, and it's always uh, it's our honor to have you in our midst. And uh, Meg, I want to say this the way you uh, wrote it. Uh, that good-looking, uh, and I say this very much in touch with my masculine side, you know, but that good-looking lieutenant commander, helicopter pilot in the United States Coast Guard, Lord willing, is going to be here Wednesday. Is that right? Okay, yeah, he's going to be here. So that's another reason to come to Wild Wednesday. And uh, we thank him and his family for uh, his service. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, you tell us to... Uh, long for the milk of the word of god like newborn babies that we might grow in respect to salvation so as we've worshiped fellowship prayed uh rejoiced in the greatness of jesus christ i pray that we can um, be open and teachable to your word the holy spirit who inspired this text would make it come alive in our hearts this would not just be information but transforming truth and we pray you'd be glorified in the process of that and the product of that in jesus name we pray amen Okay, don't forget, we've got a picnic coming up in exactly 38 minutes and counting. Uh, just to warm up your capacity for abstract thought, the three cartoons that all TB efforts can relate to, especially if you're Rick Schoenemeyer, Ron Miller, or Gene Shalek. Uh, tonight at the elders' meeting, Rick, who faithfully takes the minutes of the meeting, uh, might say, as I read the minutes of our last meeting... Please keep in mind that every minute actually felt more like an hour. Uh, this is Ron sitting at his desk at Red Dirt Apparel the day after he joined the hair club for men. And he's being interviewed by the Wall Street Journal. And Ron says to the reporter, some people call me a visionary. Actually, I'm just someone who makes very high quality t-shirts. And we thank you for your service. And then finally, this is my dear friend, Jean Shallot, who loves everybody and everything. And she's going to really love heaven. This is Jean Shallot after her first 24 hours in heaven. Uh, this would make a really good reality TV program for the Religion Channel. <laughs> okay. Uh, next week, Lord willing, it'll be our privilege to dive into the first 20 verses of the Upper Room Discourse. Today, I want to kind of orient us to this content, and we'll do two things. We'll do a bird's-eye view of the whole Gospel of John, and then we'll do a bird's-eye view of the Upper Room Discourse, which is at the very heart of the Gospel of John. Now, the Gospel of John looks like that schematic. The key hangs at the back door. There's an incredible prologue. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God the Father, and the Word was full deity himself. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us in the person of Jesus Christ. And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten Father, full of grace and truth. And then we've got this amazing epilogue where the risen Jesus causes the guys, when it's too late to catch fish, or too early in the morning to catch fish, I guess too late in the morning to catch fish, to throw the nets out in the shallows, and they get 153 fish. I'm going to tell you what the meaning of 153 is there. That's how many fish they caught. That's all it means. Okay? 
Now, the key to the Gospel of John hangs at the back door of the body. The last two verses of the body of the book tell you why he's writing. Then we've got the three major parts. Seven specific miracles Jesus did that prove who he claimed to be. The upper room discourse right in the middle. And then the ultimate sign. Now, if you look at verse 31, the key to the Gospel of John, the purpose statement that he gives you so you know exactly why he's writing, he says... John says at the end of his uh, his gospel, many other signs, signs I don't even mention in this gospel, many other sign miracles that pointed to who Jesus really is, Jesus performed in the presence of his disciples, the 12, which are not written in this book, but these, the, the seven plus the ultimate sign John specifically included in this book, are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you may have life in his name. Now, he says many other signs. Now, there are several different New Testament Greek words for miracles. This is a particular one, say, meon, that means an act that points to something or someone. Uh, John's take on the miracles of Jesus, and I think the Lord's take on the miracles of Jesus, where he, weren't, he was not trying to show off. He was doing his works, his miraculous works, to affirm and validate his words. And he claimed to be the issue and the issuer of eternal life. And if that's true, you've got to be able to do things nobody else can do. And John, who saw a lot of the miracles of Jesus, and by the way, when you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels, there are 35 specific miracles plus the resurrection that are recorded. John tells you about seven of them. And he calls them signs, and that's what they look like. If you talk about the first one, uh, I mention this a lot of times at weddings because the first miracle Jesus does to validate his claims to be the Messiah was at a wedding reception when they ran out of refreshment and just to keep a party going, right? And the seventh sign that John records, he's not making this stuff up, but he's selectively telling you about certain things John saw with his eyeballs that prove who Jesus really is was not the resurrection of Lazarus because he died again, but the supernatural resuscitation of a guy who had been room temperature for four whole days. Now, a lot of Bible scholars have pointed out when you look at that list of seven miracles, they get increasingly more spectacular. Okay, It's amazing to turn water into wine, or if you're a Baptist, water into Kool-Aid, right? But... Um, but uh, it's even more spectacular to take somebody who has been biologically dead, brain dead for four days, and have him bounce out of the tomb and then have to help him unwrap his, uh, his uh, bandages that are around his body. So John's saying, there's a lot of other stuff I could tell you about, but I'm going to selectively tell you about certain things to validate who Jesus claimed to be. And so this is the place you go to find that kind of information. Now he says, um, I'm writing this that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. Now, a lot of you have heard me say this, but a lot of Americans think Christ is Jesus' last name. Okay? Scott, a lot of Americans think you know, Mary, Mary Christ and Joseph Christ, uh, virgin conception, virgin birth, Jesus Christ, right? That's not what happened. Christ is a very significant title for the Jewish Messiah. And you know, the four Gospels have this amazing surprise ending 
the Jewish Messiah is the Savior of the world. <laughs> Salvation's of the Jews. Can you believe it? The name of our Lord is Yeshua. That name means God's Savior. So just based on his name, you should know who he is. The title Lord corresponds to that special covenant name for God we talked about in the Old Testament, the personal God who's interested in the salvation of sinners and will make that possible. And then the term Christ isn't the Lord's last name. It's a title. Uh, Mashiach is the original term in the Old Testament. You see it like in places like Psalm 2 that tell us the Messiah, the anointed one, the Savior of the world is also the Son of God. And so when John says, I want you to know Jesus is the Christ, today I think we pronounce that or, or translate that something like, I want you to know that Jesus is the Savior. And the Bible says that all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God, so we're guilty. And when you think about it, I mean, the fact that you break God's standards shouldn't be that uh, surprising because all of us at our worst break our own standards, right? So all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, and death in the Bible, my wife's out of town so I can do this. I do this for emphasis, and I, get, I go home and I get in trouble. She doesn't like me to do this. She doesn't like me to do a lot of stuff, but uh, we're, we're working on it, you know? But, uh, yeah, um, it's one thing that we've broken the rules, but what's really bad is we can't fix it, okay? Now, death in the Bible is not extinction. It's always separation. Spiritual death is relational spiritual separation from God. Physical death isn't the end of your consciousness. It's separation of what? Your consciousness, your soul from your body, okay? So when Romans says the wages of sin is death, it means separation from God. And as part of the general curse, we're all going to be subject to physical death. But what does that Romans 6.23 say in the full statement? The, the, uh, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through trying to be a religious person. No, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So when John says, I'm writing this selective uh, summary of the ministry of Christ, focusing on seven specific sign miracles so you can know that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior. He's the incarnation of God. I'm giving what you need to know about Jesus to be saved. Salvation is not a meritorious work, but it is a rational act. It's active, receptive trust in the sufficiency of Jesus as the God-man, Savior, Christ, to save you because he died for your sins and rose again from the dead. And then he says, and I'm writing this so that you might have life, that believing you might have life in his name. Now, in fact, there are two major verbs that are emphasized in the Gospel of John. We come to the possession of eternal life through believing in Christ. Pistuo is a Greek word that means to trust. Okay. Uh, in, in John 1.12, we get a nice statement. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. That is to those who believe in his name. Saving faith involves the mind and full consent of the will. It's not just historical belief that there was a guy named Jesus who taught stuff and, and even died and rose again. I mean, the demons believe in that, but pistuo is active 
receptive trust in Christ. That's how we possess the gift of eternal life. In the Upper Room Discourse, the Lord is going to tell the 11 believing disciples, okay? One of the disciples wasn't a believer, was never a believer. What's his name? Judas. Now, last Wednesday night in Daniel 11, we talked about this amazing prophecy of Daniel from the 6th century where he says 400 years from now, there'll be a horrific Hitler-like figure that will desecrate the temple and set up the abomination of desolation. And in history, it turns out 400 years later, this guy, a Syrian, not an, not an Assyrian, but a Syrian ruler by the name of Antiochus IV, desecrated the temple. And uh, 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 that prophecy was fulfilled uh, literally 400 years later. Uh, and I was going to go somewhere with Antiochus IV, and it just went away somewhere. Anybody have an idea? I'm open to suggestions. <laughs> uh, it was going to be powerful, but, man, you've got to write that stuff down, don't you? Um, expression turn on. Uh, yeah, um, there's a connection there somewhere. I'll tell you at the picnic, okay? Um, but uh, the second verb, and this is the one that the Lord emphasizes in the upper room. I know what it was. I'm not, uh, I think, kind of. Um, I might just break out in song this morning because, I mean, now, um, Judas wasn't a believer, uh, and it's pretty obvious to us that uh, he never was a believer as we read the Gospels. But you know what? When at the Last Supper Jesus says, hey, you guys have followed me for three years, but one of you will betray me, was it pretty obvious to them, Amanda, who it was? They were clueless. In fact, if anything, it couldn't be Judas. He was in charge of the money. They, if they trusted anybody, they trusted him. So uh, I know I was going to say it's not not worth doing now, especially with the time issues today. But you know what? Uh, because the Jewish leader that helped throw off Antiochus the fourth, the Syrian, and kick him back into Syria after he desecrated the temple, his name was Judas Maccabeus, Judas the Hammer. Okay. So guess what? For the next two hundred years, you know what the most popular Jewish patriotic name was for little boys? Judas. Now, after Judas Iscariot did what he did, it's not a very popular name. Although, hey, Jude, you know, it's kind of a short version of that. Thank you, Paul McCartney out there, wherever you are, you know. But uh, in the same way, George was the most popular name in the United States for the first hundred years after the Revolution for obvious reasons. But we're going to emphasize the fact that in the Upper Room Discourse, Chatney, is chapter 13 through 17 of John. That'll never change. So once you've got that, you're good on that part. Early in the... Uh, uh, narrative of that in verse 30 of chapter 13 the one unbeliever leaves the room the rest of that content is jesus talking to believers he's not telling them how to possess eternal life he's telling them how to express the eternal life they possess and if you understand that you're way ahead of the game uh, let me give you a brief simple definition we'll elaborate as we go through this series Believing in Christ for eternal life is the sinner, by the grace of God, recognizing and responding from the heart. In the Bible, the heart's not the pump that pushes your blood around. It's your mind and your will. It's when the sinner recognizes and responds from the heart to the Christ who can save us because of who he is and what he did. Who is he? He's the God-man Savior. Who else can mediate between God and man but the God-man Savior, right? It's only one Name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. What did he do? 
he bore our sins and his body on the cross. And what that means in simple theology means everything that could keep Lloyd Davis out of heaven or Harmony Moore out of heaven or uh, Eric Ward out of heaven or Ray Ward out of heaven. And more importantly, everything that could keep Brad McCoy out of heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ died and paid for on the cross as our substitutionary atoning sacrifice. And then David, you're a good Aggie. Those Aggies are really good people, aren't they? All right? That's the other Aggie we've got to introduce you to over there. What did he do to validate the saving virtue of his death? Resurrection. Resurrection is important at a lot of levels. But as I like to say, a dead Savior can't get you from Oklahoma to heaven. The risen Savior is the only one who can. Okay. So the ultimate sign in the Gospel of John is the resurrection of Christ. And uh, in chapter 2, watch this, Michael. Uh, Jesus cleanses the temple at the beginning of his ministry. And the big shots in Jerusalem say, what sign do you show us? You'd have to be the Messiah to do this. And what does Jesus say, Lori? He says, hey, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. And the disciples, John says, you know, the bad guys thought he was talking about the building he was standing in front of, but he's talking about the temple of his body, right, gay? So the ultimate sign that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, is his literal, bodily, supernatural, you can't reproduce this in the laboratory, even if you are an Aggie, resurrection from the dead. Uh, I like to say the ultimate sign in, God, in John's gospel is that road sign that I took a picture of in Jerusalem a few years ago, but it's not this sign. But uh, the resurrection of Christ validates the saving virtue of the death of Christ. He wasn't just a virtuous martyr. He was a substitutionary atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world. And because Christ died for our sins, we don't have to die in our sins. And in the Gospel of John, he says, unless you believe I'm he, the Christ, you will die in your sins. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So that's, that's where we begin the walk by receiving a standing through faith in Christ. But the Upper Room Discourse is about how do we process the eternal life we've got. So let's move from a bird's eye view of the Gospel of John to a bird's eye view of the Upper Room Discourse. And as I said, we're going to take our time and work verse by verse through this section starting Lord of Willing next week. Now, uh, don't thank me, but I came up with uh, three uh, summary statements that all begin with the letter P, okay? Uh, but how are you going to remember that, Scott? Thank you for the, uh, you know, polite laugh there. Uh, we'll just do it like that. Yeah, uh, First, we see a pattern for fellowship. The pattern for fellowship, in fact, let's just look at that. Look at chapter 13, verse 13. Now, I'm not superstitious, but boy, when you're talking about it, let's look at 13, 13. Gets my attention. But then again, it's bad luck to be superstitious, Amanda, so don't worry about that, okay? I don't believe in luck. I don't believe in luck, but my wife and the OU football team are the two luckiest entities I know anything about. I'm just telling you. Extremely lucky. Look at uh, 13, 13. This is part of this first of three sections in the Upper Room Discourse. This is our Lord Jesus talking to the guys. He's just washed their feet. So much important theology in that simple act. Listen. Uh, 
If you want to be like Christ, you got to be very giving and very forgiving. And you got to be doing the giving for the right reasons. If you're doing it so people tell about how great you are or pat you on the head or give you a promotion or sing a song about you, when they stop doing that, you stop giving. It's kind of like motherhood. I mean, you just keep giving and giving and giving and giving and giving. But you know what? What Harmony's doing, what Amanda's doing, what Amanda's doing with Mavis is the most important discipleship ministry you'll ever have in your life. Jamie, do you realize how blessed you are to have parents like you've got that love you with all their heart and love the Lord? And look at your grandparents all the way from Houston, Texas. Uh, you let your kids move to Duncan, Oklahoma? What's wrong with you? No, I'm kidding. Uh, but the Lord says in this upper room, and look, the, the guys are still clueless. He's told them what's happening. He knows exactly he's going to get go out to Gethsemane and get brutalized and crucified the next day. And they're clueless. They're still arguing about which one of them is going to be the greatest when Jesus takes over the government. They still think he's going to do a coup and take over the government. They literally believe that. But he just washed their feet, and 13.13 says, You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right. I do outrank you. I just happen to be the incarnation of God, the Christ, you know. Uh, It's because that's what I am. And then he says, if I then, the Lord, the teacher, God in manifest flesh, washed your dirty Jewish feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. Not literally necessarily, but rhetorically. Uh you need to serve one another and do stuff that the average person, the average Christian, much less the average unbeliever, probably wouldn't do. For I've just given you an example that you should also do as I did for you. Truly, truly, I say to you, I'm not asking you to do anything better, anything I wouldn't do. In fact, the fact I do it means you ought to do it. A slave, that's what they are, that's what I am, to the Lord Jesus is not greater than his master. And I've just done this for you. I'm showing you. Uh, how this works, and then as he emphasizes throughout this discourse, if you know these things, you're blessed because you've memorized, uh, if you memorize the whole Bible, you know what? Uh, There's a seminary in the Arab world, 22 country Arab world, and the requirement to get into this Muslim seminary is you must memorize the Quran in Arabic. To get in the seminary, you've got to memorize the Quran in Arabic. Have you memorized the whole book of Genesis yet, John? How's that coming? Can you imagine if somebody said you had to memorize the Bible in English, much less Greek or Hebrew, to get in the seminary? These people are determined, man. They're they're focused. They're serious. But the Lord says, but you know what? That doesn't doesn't necessarily do anything. Uh, who are the only bad guys in the Gospels? Are the religious people who have most of the Old Testament memorized in Hebrew, right? Jesus says, if you know these things, you're blessed in your spiritual life if you what? You've got to do them. And not mechanically, but relationally. Because when you do the, the right things for wrong reasons, what do we call that around here? We call that bad good works which is why Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. If that's your motivation, you're doing the right things for the wrong reasons. That doesn't count. That's self-righteousness, not true righteousness. So that's the pattern. Now principles for fellowship. Look at uh, chapter 15. And again, important to note, Judas is long gone. He's gone getting with the bad guys to organize the lynch party. Um, 
So it's just Jesus and the 11 believing apostles. He knows that. He emphasizes that. And he says in chapter 15, verse 3, you, and uh, in the uh, Greek text uh, of the John, that's plural. And so in Oklahoma, that'd be all y'all. I'm, I'm not sure if you'd say that in Texas still, but you got y'all, a singular, all y'all is plural. So Jesus says uh, in 15, 3, all y'all, all 11 of you cats are clean. You've had the bath of salvation. You're believers. Because of the word I've spoken to you, now, as believers, moment by moment, I want you to walk in the Spirit. I want you to live in the fear of the Lord. Or the metaphor he uses here is abiding in me, abiding in Christ. Recognize and respond from the heart to the one who has saved us. Abide in me, and I'll abide in you as the branch, uh, the great branch can't bear fruit of itself unless it's attached, abiding in the trunk, the main vine. You can't bear anything but self-righteous religious stuff unless you abide in me. It's about relational mechanics, not mechanical rules and regulations. And then the prayer for fellowship. This is so poignant. Go to chapter 17 where the Lord prays literally for every believer in this room in this prayer. I'll show you what I mean by that. But look at chapter 17. We've seen the pattern for fellowship. Service with the right reasons, with a smile on your face and a song on your heart, even if the servees don't tell you how great you are. And a lot of times they won't. And if you're consistent enough, they won't even, they'll stop noticing what you're doing for them. They just don't even see it at all. That's just the way we are. We're inherently in grace in our sin and nature, right? Principles for fellowship. Now look at prayer for fellowship. 17, verse 20. Chapter 17, or verse 14, excuse me. Now we'll get 20 in a minute. 17, verse 14. Jesus is praying, and he says, I, to, he's praying to God the Father, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world. They're going to have to suffer. They're going to have to face opposition. It's not going to be easy. But to keep them from the evil one, they are not of the world even as I am not of the world. Then he says, sanctify them in truth, your word is truth. That, that verse is very meaningful to me as far as my conception of what I'm trying to do as a Bible teaching pastor. I actually believe that's what happens when teachable people interact with the word of God. I just, uh, you can't convince me of anything else. Verse 18, as you've sent me into the world, the father's the sender, the son's the sendee. They're both ontologically equal, but they have different roles in the plan of salvation. Like you've sent me, I've sent them into the world, into the place of spiritual combat and death. Look at verse 20 now. Now watch this. This is where the Lord starts talking about Gene Shallot and Nicole Love. Watch this, Nicole. The Lord prays here. He says, I do not ask on behalf of these 11 believing apostles alone, but for those who will believe in me through their word. We're, we're reading the Word of God here, but it's the Word of John the Apostle. You're looking at a, a, an English translation of a document John the Apostle wrote under inspiration, Rita, and the Lord's talking about you there. You're, you're somebody who's come to faith as a result of the apostolic Word. So Jesus says, I'm not just praying for these 11 guys. I'm praying for everybody who's going to believe in me through their Word, the Word of the New Testament ultimately, right? that they may all be one. Not possession, but expression of our unity. 
inherently, since the, the Scripture says that uh, all of us have been identified with the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, at the moment of saving faith, whether you're a born-again Lutheran, a born-again Methodist, a born-again Presbyterian, a born-again Episcopalian, a born-again ex-Buddhist, a born-again Baptist, like I am. I'm, I'm a recovering Baptist. It didn't, you know, I'm, I'm doing okay lately, you know. Yeah. Uh, some Baptist convention does incredible stuff for the kingdom, but it's not the only kind of exact version of the Christianity either. But, uh, yeah, there's an inherent unity we have in Christ, and the Lord's praying not that that would be there, but that would be expressed. I pray they'll all be one in their attitudes and functions and action, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so the world may believe that you sent me. When, when the, the, the capital C Church of Jesus Christ looks the way it should, which is this, we got the cross in the center, and it's a little bit off-center, but when you put the whole thing there, you guys kind of look like that. But uh, the thing that binds all of us Christians, born-again Christians together is faith in the crucified, risen Savior, daring to believe Jesus died for our sins and rose again. And Assembly of God folks who believe that are born again, and Methodists who believe in that are born again, and Southern Baptists and Northern Baptists and Church of the Nazarene and Presbyterians and Lutherans, and even, praise God, Tanglewood Bible Fellowship or people who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ are regenerate. And that's the way God sees His church in Duncan. Back in the old days, they used to have a thing called the Yellow Pages. You probably haven't heard of it. Uh, you don't need them anymore, you know, it's on this. But you get the Yellow Pages, and in Duncan, golly, I mean, hey, we've got like 22,000 people. Have they told you about this? We've got 22,000 people in Duncan, 45,000 in the county, and we, when I got here, we had like 70 churches in Duncan. Now we got like 170. I mean, they open them in garages. We've got a motorcycle church, cowboy church, a bowler church. Uh, we've got magazine reader churches. We've got every kind of church you need, man. It's all great. And some of these guys are actually ordained, you know, so it's amazing when that works out. It's nice. But, uh, but you know what? Um, I've never been obsessed with uh, the idea that I've got to write the doctrinal statement for all the churches. God sees his, his regenerate church like that, and he likes the pattern. And the Lord's praying that more and more we'll get with that program. To me, Tangled Bible Fellowship is really a nice microcosm of what that looks like to God as he looks at the church in Stevens County because we're a group of believers in Jesus Christ uh, from a wide variety of denominational backgrounds united by our faith in Christ and a desire uh, to uh, grow spiritually and reproduce spiritually, right? By focusing on certain basics. You know what the basics are this week? Every week. Bible study, not Reader's Digest, not what Oprah said, you know. Bible study, fellowship, worship, prayer, evangelism, and world missions. That's what we're focusing on. That's the plan. I'm like a basketball coach, Ken, with one play. That's the only play I've got. But if you execute it, you can score, you know? All right, I'm going to end here. Usually we call the conclusion, and, the, you know, all my sermons have happy endings because everybody's happy when they end, you know? That's the crazy thing about it. But uh, we usually call this, take this to heart. But today only we're going to call this before you go to the picnic, okay? But uh, I have a question for you. Where in the Bible does Jesus directly teach believers how to really fellowship with him even though he's physically absent?
We're going to see at the very, very beginning of John 13, as John prepares you for this, says Jesus is about to go out of the world. So he's going to tell these guys who've been walking with him physically for three years, how do you fellowship with him when he's not physically walking around with you anymore? How do you do that? And we've got to know that too, right? Uh, where in the Bible does Jesus teach believers how to be righteous, but not self-righteous? We don't want self-righteousness. We don't want mechanical Christianity, behavior modification. Psychologists can do behavior modification on people and on parakeets. I took a college class where we basically did evil things to parakeets for six months. And we had them, you know, whistling Dixie. You know, if you know when to shock them, you can get them to tap dance for you. Uh, but that's not what Christianity is about, man. It's about the, let's just keep it real here, you know. Uh, and where in the Bible does Jesus directly teach believers how we can have significance uh, even if we never have earthly success. And that's really what Americans are all about. I want earthly success. And that's not good enough. That's not a good enough target. It's not going to satisfy you anyway. So that's my question, Kay. Where in the Bible does Jesus do that? I think you want to say John 13 through 17. So uh, Lord willing, next Sunday uh, we'll begin to look at this verse by verse. So if you'd like to read ahead, please read chapter 13, and you're going to see the pattern, right, Kyleen? The pattern for fellowship, and it's selfless, joyful service of other people. Father, help us to really be excited about the prospect of looking very intently at this incredibly strategic portion of your beautiful word, and I pray that you do radical heart surgery, especially for those of us maybe who've been going through the motions or being too mechanical are too focusing on rules and regs and not on the relational connection and response we need to have from Jesus to Jesus Christ. So, of course, we're obeying the rules, but we never notice how wonderful we are because it's all about how great our Lord and Savior truly is. Uh, I pray for anyone here this morning who's not from the depth of their heart as the Spirit convicts them of sin and need. I pray for anyone who's not trusted Jesus Christ alone as their Savior, daring to believe that He died and paid for their sins on the cross, and He validated that payment by His glorious, literal, supernatural resurrection from the dead. Open hearts to believe and see and accept the gift of eternal life. Uh, I want to pray, Father, You bless our food when we all get to the picnic. Bless our fellowship. Keep us safe. And thank You for allowing us to enjoy great koinonia today out in the the great outdoors. I thank you for each one who's here this morning. I pray you would uh, bless them, strengthen them, encourage them uh, through the fellowship and through the uh, study of the word and worship this morning. We pray in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.